Welcome to the Purse Podcast. My name is Jana Hlistova, and we are changing the conversation for women about money and investing. I'm super excited to have Sean Richards back on the show. Sean is an independent economist who specializes in inflation measurement and monetary economics. This follows a career in the city of London, where he specialized in derivatives, mainly options on interest rates and bonds. He also worked in Tokyo. He is a Bank of England watcher, which covers the issues of monetary policy and quantitative easing. He also traded as a local on the London International Financial Futures Exchange, and he mostly traded futures and options on future and present UK interest rates. Now, in this podcast interview, we talk about the Bank of England, rising interest rates, how effective are they? And we talk about the second half of this year and will the Bank of England start printing money again? How do people keep their head above water in the cost of living crisis? And to finish up, we talk about what we can be optimistic about in the UK economy at the moment. I hope you enjoy this podcast interview as much as I did. Please note that this podcast interview is for informational purposes only. We do not provide investment advice. Well, Sean, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you on again. Thank you for inviting me back. It's become almost a regular feature, hasn't it? Well, I think you are a regular now, Sean. I think that's the honest truth. <laughs> Both good and bad. Both good and bad. Nice <laughs> to be invited back. Also, as Prince put it, a sign of the times, I think. Mm, we definitely need your insight. I was chuckling to myself reading over some of my questions to you when the Bank of England had increased the, the base rate to 1.75%. And I remember being so shocked by it. And we were talking about whether the interest rates could possibly go any higher. And of course, here we are. The Bank of England has increased the base rate again to 5.25%. And it's probably going higher. The good news is that inflation has dipped a little bit in June to 7.9%. It was 8.7% in May. I mean, the obvious question, Sean, is... How effective do you think increasing interest rates in this market and economy is? Because it doesn't really feel like we do have inflation under control in the UK or anywhere, although in the US, they're doing a lot better over there. Well, it depends how you measure it. It's one of my specialist areas. But going back to your question, interest rates, you see what we've lost, I think, is what I as an ex-options trader would call the delta of an interest rate rise. What happens in response to it? Because the world's changed since the last time anyone did this for a start. Mm. In the UK, last time interest rates were anything like this was back in 2007. We hadn't seen a rise like this, which I think is also an important point, how quickly they've done it right. for decades. And then it was at very different levels and very different times. So there's quite a bit of uncertainty in that. I run an analogy which goes as follows. Interest rate rises are like a brick on a piece of elastic. Nothing happens, nothing happens, nothing happens, nothing happens. Whack. Mm. Where this time around, I think the risk is, as I just said, they've done this in a rush. 14 times in a row, they've raised interest rates. So the risk is in the future that we'll be hit by the brick. And then we'll all be going, what's happened? And that's the problem. What has changed in the meantime? I can give you two specific things which have slowed things up. You see, the old theory was 
to change interest rates and the full impact is felt about 18 months, two years later. This time around, things were different. Why? In the UK, there are a lot more fixed rate mortgages. Now, they don't last forever. They're usually two, three, four or five year terms. But that means to some extent, people have bought time. Now, that's actually a good thing if you think about it. Because central banks were saying all sorts of things when interest rates are very low. But it shows people were brighter than that figured out that things were very low and it was best to get a bit of insurance. However, over time, that will run out. Whereas in the past, mostly when interest rates rose, mortgage rates went up next month. So there's a slower reaction function. And there's been some research in the United States saying that quite a lot of companies, particularly the bigger ones, borrowed when things were cheap. So they need to borrow less now. So the point of those two factors is that they're slowing the impact. And that's probably why, here's an optimism bit for you, that in these circumstances, the economy is doing quite well. If you'd have asked me to sit down and measure, Sean, what do you think would happen if bank rate went to 5.25%, we're doing better now, I think partly because of those two factors. I think there's a third one, Bank of England won't like me for saying this, but I don't think people actually believe them and think that they'll cut again as soon as they can. So they're seeing this as a temporary phase. Of course, mm. the problem is how long that lasts. So they're the factors. I have a bit of relative optimism. Now, for people listening, I don't know what the Friday GDP numbers are saying this, but it looks as if they'll be positive for the second quarter. It's quite tight. So within the margin of error, it could be a big. And because of the King's coronation, that will be a relatively strong quarter because that's not allowed for in the adjustments. So mm-hmm. we're going forward to, you know, we did kind of, I'm not sure if we exactly spoke in November, but we were speaking back then. Places like the Bank of England and Office for Budget Responsibility were incredibly negative. I think that was wrong, but anyway, they, they were. And the risk was then of a sort of, some sort of downward spiral, which hasn't happened. I was thinking, why hasn't the Bank of England just paused why haven't they taken a breath at, say, 4.75%? And we know there is a lag. We, we don't quite know what the impact or how much of an impact it's going to have. As you say, everyone's kind of expecting the Bank of England then to start dropping the interest rate back down. I'm really puzzled why the aggressive hike, as you said, we've had 14 consecutive hikes. Why aren't they taking a breath, waiting for the economy to catch up, and then maybe we can start to go back down more gradually. It just feels really out of balance to me. Well, it's because they were late. I forget when we first started these interviews, but my argument was, and we're going back now, what is it? Well, yeah, it's actually just about two years. When you come to late summer 2021, Mm -hmm. what they should have done is reversed all the cuts as a first move. So I've gone back to three quarters of a percent. That would have seemed a big deal at the time. We'll never know what the impact will be because they didn't do it. But my argument was back then that you sort of get on the horse. But the other thing that they should have stopped, and this is quite a technical area that people don't follow and and the press don't cover, but it was all the bond buying they did to suppress Mm -hmm. longer term interest rates. They still had about another 150 billion to do. Now, that was very wrong because they were piling more on. It's something where they have losses on now. And I think was really stupid. So they could have turned then. Why would you do that? Because to some extent, 
you're getting ahead of events. They were giving speeches then saying that inflation was expected to go to 4%, so double their target. So they should have acted. They didn't. When they finally did, it came to December, and in those few months is a big deal, I think, and then they raised it by 0.1. I mean, what was the point of that? Yeah. So this is the problem. They got going late. Now they're in a rush to do it. Now, this is a generic answer now I'm giving you because the European Central Bank was even worse. The Federal Reserve was very similar. That they're now boasting that they've acted quickly. Mm. But that's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. And they're getting away with that, in my opinion, because it matters when you do things as well as what you do. The old a stitch in time saves nine. Now, I'm not yeah. telling you who to save nine rate rises. But getting in there earlier might have changed the situation. And just to answer the excuse about the Ukraine war that they use, you see, depending exactly how you look at the timing, how quickly you think the impact was, inflation was already 6 or 7%. So it was already a serious problem. Made it worse, yeah, but it was already a problem and they missed it. And I think it was easier to miss it because the Fed also didn't do anything in the summer of 2021. So, you know, if the Fed do nothing, it's easier to get away with doing nothing, right, the Bank of England. But we should have definitely acted sooner. So we underreacted in the summer of 2021, and now we're overreacting. We're trying to play catch-up, but actually doing far more damage. And that's the worry. They would have agreed this. This is really bad groupthink between them. Yeah. You know, we're supposed to be paying people for expertise. Mm. And what they've demonstrated is the reverse. But to go back to your earlier question, you didn't... See, I think that is the reason whereby they raised from 4.5% to 5%. So that's two rises ago now. They panicked with the May inflation numbers in the UK, which were poor monthly as well as annual. So it looked Mm. like the trajectory wasn't very good. Mm. And they freaked out a bit on that. And again, I think that is a mistake. The problem is what they didn't do before. And that actually is a really bad thing. Why? You cannot respond to inflation numbers like that because you're responding to what happened a year ago by doing something now. That's no good at all, is it? Because when you're doing something now, that's going to operate in 2024 or 2025. So you've got to be looking ahead. I know that when people look at this, think, oh, what's going on? But the timing really matters. You've got to look Mm. ahead. The actual May numbers to some extent, when you're looking like that, didn't really matter. As it turned out, June was good, yeah. and so it washed out. You see, well, that's my point. But the trouble is they'd already panicked. Having done a half, they then felt they had to do a quarter this time. Yeah. You know, two of them voted for a half. And this is where they're in a problem, I think, that they're doing it to justify what they didn't do before. And that is exactly the mistake the politicians used to make. And that's exactly the reason the Bank of England got the job. I was going to say that, Sean. It feels very political to me now because they didn't do what they were supposed to do back in the summer of 2021. They've obviously been feeling the heat in more ways than one since then. I mean, the cost of living crisis in the UK continues. People who have mortgages, the younger generation who've just got a mortgage are having to pay a hell of a lot. Their monthly mortgages have jumped up substantially. So a lot of people are feeling it. 
And I guess they're trying to save face. But the, you know, the the mistake was done. We're going to be living with the impact of this for many years to come. And I remember having a conversation, it might have been with you, Sean, or with Vicky Price, but I think the expectation was that we'd get back down to 2% inflation by 2023. And we couldn't be further from that. It's quite shocking where we are, really. And I think we're still going to be feeling the impact of this 2024, absolutely 2025 and onwards. One of the think tanks came out with a report recently which said that we will just be getting to kind of pre-pandemic levels from a standard of living point of view by 2027. It's going to take a long time for all of this to wash out. Well, wages were a problem anyway. Mm. During the pandemic, I reported the wages numbers. We have an office for statistic responsibility. Mm-hmm. And I pointed out that in simple terms, they were rubbish because they were recording then enormous real wage gains. And I said, so what we needed, because we, people remember, you know, the first impact of the COVID thing was the economy shrank by 20% and went down for a bit. And then we recovered over a period. So I said, so to get real wages up, we needed to collapse the economy. And someone tell me that they think those numbers are right. And they couldn't argue with my argument. It was plainly correct. But they've rolled on with the numbers again. But actually, we don't really know what Mm. they are. For economic historians, the numbers have been messed up. Because, of course, time goes on, people will forget. Mm. And they won't realise that the numbers are a nonsense. So that's an issue. There are little areas of things. Like, for example, something I covered yesterday that might not necessarily think... it's probably running in the housing market. Now, over, say, the last year, house prices have fallen by 3%, not very much. Mm. But wages have gone up by around 7 if you believe mm-hmm. the official numbers. The house prices have fallen by 10% relatively. It's one of the areas where there's been a gain. Now, of course, there are lots of others where people have lost and prices are higher. So there have been switches and changes. And that's one of the things at times like this and where... I don't have a lot of time for some of the strategic views at places like the Office of Budget Responsibility there. And to some extent, some of these think tanks, when they're saying things for 2027, 2028, my argument is that the situation is so dynamic that you can't say that Mm. because the set of assumptions that you're using now might not apply in 2025, certainly probably won't in 2027, 28. Yeah. We've touched upon mortgages and you know people who have mortgages and and I was looking through some statistics last night Sean as you do Monday night looking through (laughs) UK mortgage statistics welcome to my life (laughs) and so approximately 37% of people in the UK have a mortgage or have a loan in order to own or have their home and it's the younger generation right of homeowners who are bearing the brunt of these rate increases because they have a smaller deposit, they will be feeling the increase of the interest rates if they're on a variable mortgage, not a fixed. And I know a lot of people are on a fixed, but there are people out there who aren't or just coming off the fixed mortgage rate. And baby boomers, in comparison, have paid off most, if not all, of their mortgage, right? So the value of their home has gone up, relatively speaking, since the pandemic, and they're not likely to feel the sting in the same way that the younger generations are. My question is, is raising interest rates an effective strategy? It's a very blunt tool. It always has been. The real answer to your sort of implied question there is, which is what else is there, is that at different times, other things have been tried and they didn't work. 
I'll give you an example of something different that was used in the past. In the 1970s, so a long time ago, was the idea of people might hear the Bank of England talking about wages going up. And what they're implying is a wages prices spiral. So wages go up, pushes prices up again, wages go up, and so on. But when people tried to control it, mostly it made things worse rather than better. Because you pick something and something, and actually, we do have some examples of that right now. And what's it led to? The strikes we're seeing. Because mm. in various areas with doctors, we won't pay or the rail strikes, uh, train drivers and so on. And exactly that mess. So whilst it's not that good a weapon, it's basically really the only show in town. And as I said before, it, it is a blunt instrument. It does happen through things like mortgage rates. That's changed because of more fixed rate ones. It affects businesses too. So the general borrowing argument, you see, there's an undercut to this also, doesn't get reported very often. Some people gain out of this. Um, Savers have had a really bad time. I often quote a speech given by local Charlie Bean, who was deputy governor of the Bank of England at the time. And this is from 2010, I think, all those years ago, when he said savers will have a better time. Well, they've had to wait 12, 13 years for it. You know, and it's another sector of the economy, again, it's probably mostly older people gaining, so there's an age issue here. And again, also for those with like annuities from their pensions, they've had an awful time. And here, I'll give you another thing that hasn't been done. Certain people with pensions, it was a thing that was supposed to save them, which was towards the end, it's supposed to be safer to put them into bonds. Mm-hmm. They've just made them buy bonds right at the top, and now that looks really bad. But there's a lot of things in there, but my point is, there's a lot of strands at the same time. Some people gain out of interest rate rises, those with savings. There were more of them usually than those with mortgages. It's complicated. Certain types of pensions. So there are winners too. So the actual impact on the economy is not just those that are losing. It's the sort of net difference between those that lose and those that win. And of course, those that are losing are always more vocal. So everyone concentrates on them. But if you're running a proper policy, you need to look at both sides and what the impact will be. It's a good point. And there's also been discussion about the fact that it's taken banks a while to pass on the higher interest rates onto savers. They've hung on to the difference. So we've seen a lot of banks increase their profitability over the last 18 months or so. I mean, we're starting to see higher interest rates for savers and more should be passed on. But there are always two sides to the coin, to your point, Sean, I agree. I want to just move on now and talk about this kind of impending recession that everyone seems to be getting ready for in the second half of this year. And with that, there is a lot of discussion and expectation even that the central banks will start to print money again. In fact, we are starting to see that in countries like China anyway. And so we've got these rising interest rates, you know, very high government debt, the service costs are going up as a result, right? Where do you see this heading? Well, they've got themselves, in my opinion, into quite a mess. If we go back to the pandemic now, now roughly the Bank of England financed the extra government spending in round numbers, not exactly pound, but they they didn't go out and buy the exact bonds, which is what's called debt monetization. But they implicitly did that. They bought another one somewhere and it, it mostly added up. And that's created a problem. I don't think they understood what they did. Now, 
we have an issue whereby the Bank of England's actually losing quite a lot of money at this. In simple terms, they bought at the top and they're now selling at the bottom. They sold some yesterday afternoon, another 790 million. And some of it was an awful trade. One of our longer bonds, which matures in 2071, I think they were selling at 46. They would have bought that 110, 120. So they have a real problem on their books. One of the fixes for it is for them to cut interest rates again, because that will make their books cheaper and things will go back down. So there must be a temptation there for them. The Bank of England's currently wearing a hair shirt, selling some of that, so it's capitalising the losses to some extent. Most of the other central banks are trying to hide it. If we look across to Europe, some of the European central bank stuff must look awful. Mm. They were buying Italian bonds at negative interest rates. They're actually having to pay out as well as losing. So, But back to your point, this is the thing. They're trying to look macho at the minute saying we're going to deal with inflation. <laughs> it's really they, obvious. <laughs> they don't believe that. You see, to quote the monkey song, I'm a believer, when I was saying <laughs> earlier to this, I would have done it because I believe in that. So you would have seen me putting interest rates back to three quarters. And then I had a thing, I, I thought we should get back to one and a half, two percent, just to give a concrete example. Mm-hmm. That's what I was writing at the time. Whether that would have been enough, of course I don't know. But it would have made it better. Now, if we move back to them, they didn't really believe this. That's why, although people are saying bond yields at the minute are really bad, Mm. if you actually look at them, they're a lot lower, usually, than the actual interest rates. Why? People don't believe the central banks. Mm. They've seen what happened. Markets have their faults, but they're usually not stupid. And they can see a pattern of behaviour, and people don't believe it. But we don't know at which point they'll go back down. I think they're probably afraid of going so low again. But here's an undercut. They do have plans for central bank digital coins. Mm-hmm. And in my view, that has one main, well, it's the purpose of control. But more than that, it will allow them to take interest rates more negative. Now, the IMF wrote a paper with an example. And the example in that was minus 3%. As I said before, there's a group thing amongst all these people. And that's what they're thinking. If things get really bad, we can enforce that. Why didn't they do it anyway? There was a reason that the European Central Bank stopped at sort of minus a half. Switzerland went to minus three quarters, but it was slightly different because they had a currency issue because they were afraid that the banks had collapsed. Like when you were saying earlier, banks are making money now. They yeah. weren't making any money back then. Their business model was broken. Mm-hmm. And that's why they didn't go lower wasn't for you or I. They were frightened of the banks. The reason why they're doing this is that partly for the thing that you said before, in various areas, debt's piled up mm. and they're struggling to pay it. Again, these things are very dynamic and it turns up in different areas. I'll give you an example. Look at the extraordinary numbers in the world of football. I'm a football fan. I'm a Chelsea fan. But there are extraordinary numbers here. In 2020, the football club supposedly had no money. Something sticks in my mind. Arsenal let their mascot go, Gunnosaurus. I mean, what must he have cost? That's the same <laughs> Arsenal that's just paid $105 million for a player three years later. Mm-hmm. So there's extraordinary numbers in certain areas where debt's piled up. Um, Chelsea's owned at the minute by an American company who essentially their game is to pile debt on things. We've seen this in the water companies, haven't we? Look at the mess they're in. But that's actually quite a simple business. 
we charge people the money to pay for sewage to give them clean water and it seems to have become an outright mess so there's quite a few areas like this mm. and their way of trying to fix this for places like that would be to have heavily negative interest rates because suddenly that business model would work again you know and things like it's not really outright the intention but things like private equity piled down stuff would work again that's the thing and in many respects government you see they were able to do all that boring through the pandemic because it was so cheap in fact at the time i was arguing the uk should issue some hundred year bonds i think that was a missed opportunity we got them away incredibly cheaply mm -hmm. but now we're on the other side of that and if we look at UK yields, four and a half percent, that's more expensive. We have inflation linked debt, that's expensive. So costs have come back in a way that they weren't. And again, some people gain out of it because, you know, some people have paid the interest. But going back to the minus three percent point, that bails them out of quite a few problems that they've let happen yeah. without them having to admit they've done anything wrong. Why do they need a digital coin? Because otherwise people have an out. Cash, just simply mm -hmm. having money is an out because they can't charge you a negative interest rate on that. So other alternatives will have to be closed down. The digital coin will have to be like the ring in Lord of the Rings, one ring to rule them all and in the darkness find them. There has <laughs> to be no other choice. Now, obviously there'll be other coins, something like Bitcoin or roll on, but they'll try and ban them. Yes. And one of the advantages, right, of introducing technology to currency is that you can then personalize, you know, you apply a negative interest rate to, say, government debt, you apply an, a different interest rate to you or I, you're collecting lots of data, you've got lots of data on people, on products, institutions, and essentially you can create a very personalized mini economy for each and every one of us. Yeah, although some of it will just simply be fraud, but this is an awkward one and I'm always afraid to raise it because obviously Nigel Farage is a very polarizing character. And again, the, the actual case was reported badly. I have friends that actually deal with what these called a pet cases of what they call them, a politically exposed persons anyway. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But there was an underlying principle here of refusing banking to someone and there's two awkward strands should a bank be able to turn a customer down yes mm. but there was this underlying implication that they were turning someone down because they didn't like their views now it's very different to saying something because it's illegal that's part of the pet rules you shouldn't do it although sometimes they have but that's the problem the fact that you could be turned down because they don't like you. I mean science fiction is full of this isn't it dystopian stuff you know, you have like an underclass. That's the sort of risk or danger from this. Virtually every sci-fi film is full of it. And that's because people are afraid of it. They realise that there are sort of trends in this in their own character. And these are the problems. I mean, something I'm looking forward to is the second part of the science fiction film, Dune. I'm a big fan of the Dune books. But it's in there, the same thing, the idea of control and people being oppressed. It's part of human nature. It's one of the reasons why some of these books are so successful, because what it's telling us is something about ourselves. And unfortunately, sometimes it's things we don't like. 
it's a fascinating but also very frightening time because I think we're, we're seeing a lot of trends converging and they're definitely going to be converging and accelerating in this decade. I'm definitely watching the CBD C-Space very closely. In fact, I, I talked to Eva Pascoe about it on the podcast and we weren't too negative about it, but I think there's definitely a darker side that's worth exploring. I want to move on to the next question, Sean. How do you think people should keep their head above water in this economic climate? It's more of your opinion, really. But based on what you're saying, there are two sides to every coin. You know, you rightly brought up the fact that as a saver, you're earning higher interest. So that's good. But equally, everything is so much more expensive in the UK. How do people keep their head above water in this cost of living crisis, do you think? Well, I'll give you a nuance as a start. You didn't quite answer your question. I don't think the situation is bad in the UK. It's partly the way we measure it. We'll find out more later this month to explain what I'm saying here because the domestic energy costs will come into the UK numbers. So it depends how they deal with standing charges and that. But roughly in the headline, about 0.8 will come off that way and the RPI more like 1.5%. So we'll be more like for like with Europe because they're pulled in more quickly. We're always going to be behind the US because, you see, energy wasn't as big an issue for them. And going forward, I think that energy is pretty much the number one issue. We've lived through times where now people don't think it was cheap. It's relatively cheap. Now we have a problem. And again, people have had different views on this, but we're advancing solutions that have been abandoned in the past. If wind power had worked back in the 17th and 18th centuries, we wouldn't have dug up all the coal and oil, would we? So there is an issue there now. Some aspects of technology have improved, but there's still basic problems. And I think there the issue is going ahead. This winter, in general, I'm an optimist. We've gone through this quite well. The risk is this winter, though. If we have a cold, still winter, mm. then we have a problem. We can get stuff from Europe. We have the interconnectors. We can get about seven gigawatts of electricity out of them. But on a really bad thing, that might not be enough. So that's the question for me. Apart from that, we're doing reasonably okay. Now, I don't think it's very good. But I said earlier that we'd have some growth, but it's not very much. It's something like 1% or less than 1%. Yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. It's tiny. But the actual energy issue, I think, is the one where we need to find policies that actually work. Now, this is something you can blame on my generation, if you like. This has gone on for a while. This goes back to the Tony Blair government. Simple failure to build new nuclear power plants. I'm not particularly a nuclear fan, but in the set of choices we have, mm. we needed them. And it's a big problem. So there is the issue as to how people individually can cope with this. Well, we've got through this before. For some, this is going to be quite hard. So that might sound maybe a little patronising. But there is work out there. We've avoided that sort of situation so far anyway, where unemployment's gone up. The modern era issue is what your wages buy you. And I think that, unfortunately, is a generic issue, partly because we outsource some of the things to China and India and so on, where things are cheaper. And that's applied a, a downwards pressure. Let's stay with the science fiction thing. I'm a big fan of the film 2001, where they have the idea of something wonderful. We need something to move forwards. 
be it say like something like nuclear fusion actually works or something like that that's what we need and i'm afraid for us individually there's not a lot we can do about that so are you saying it's a case of if you're in europe and especially the uk energy continues to be a problem especially through the winter months if we have a very very cold winter and that's where if people are struggling financially it's going to be difficult until we find that alternative to fossil fuels yeah and that's going to take a while <laughs> and again well it's, this is really awkward because all these debates get very polarizing rather than nuanced mm -hmm. i'm no particular fan of taking gas out of the thing and then burning it there are better things we could do with it mm. but because of the set of choices we've made we're trapped in that for a while because we don't have something better and we've tried to impose solutions that don't work it's mm. awkward and people don't want to listen to this there'll be something in this now saying what's he going Arr. but that's an emotional response if you go back to the actual facts like i do each day the uk wind power numbers and there's a point to this as in actual numbers each day and they don't always work so what do we do then but it's presented you know the saudi arabia of wind and all that and also people present average numbers well that's very misleading because what you do on days when there aren't any i've seen people for example silly things just on social media saying that the wind always blows well, no, it doesn't. Now, again, <laughs> because our actual output has gone down to half a gigawatt hour out of a supposed maximum of 25. Mm -hmm. So very little, virtually none. What do we do then? And that's the problem. It's not the sort of opinion thing. People want this. Okay, fair enough. But it's the fact that they're presenting numbers that aren't true. Mm -hmm. And I'm afraid at some point there's a risk that that will come up, that we get a day like that say in January when it's really cold and then there'll be an enormous problem things will have to be turned off and they go how will we get here well because people didn't tell the truth on days that it works let me give both sides the point I think there was one a couple of Saturdays ago when the wind was blowing and we also had a fair bit of solar power you know that was Nirvana for that thing mm. but it doesn't happen that often I'm afraid what people can do about that now there's some things we can do but what the real issue is and these things take time is making the right decisions going forward some of them may be unpalatable and not mm. really ideally what we want to do but the basic question is do we want the lights on or not it needs to be something that might work mm. i mean let, let me give an example there's been advances in battery technology, I'd say mm. in the laptop I'm using now, works much better. But battery technology, as far as we have it, isn't going to save us. It isn't good enough. And we're running around building for that old era technology, again, that we know doesn't work. We need something new, maybe, if we can find it. We're spending money quite often on things that don't work. What could the smart meters do, really? So they tell you what you're spending well you can look at your bill for that in general mm. the only thing they do is allow them to turn people off in my view that's not very nice is it or to turn people off at peak times and there's a, again a very dark side to this yeah whereby that's what they're actually intending to do it's awkward as i said 
some of the answers to this are going to be unpalatable. But surely it's better to face up to something and go forward with things that are realistic. Because bring this back to my world now of economics, we've got used to cheap power. The economy's run on it. Yeah. We're going to have enormous trouble if we don't do that. Now, I didn't really answer your first question, which is how do people deal with this? Well, some of it is choices, things like that. But I'm afraid most of it is simply getting on with their lives and trying to ignore the doom and gloom. It doesn't really do any good, does it? I mean, people obviously have choices to think things are bad. But other than that, there's not really an answer. It's something that we haven't touched on today, but I'll throw in. We talked about people with mortgages. Well, those renting are having a hard time as well. Someone was only telling me last night when they knew that their rent had just been raised by 500 quid, so they were moving. You know, so there are genuine problems out there. Somehow, in the whole mix, we're going forward. So it doesn't mean that people are not having a really hard time. And this is, if we take this deeper, one of my issues with all the money that was spent back in the COVID time, that this was always going to happen. Economics is often about deferring things. The question is, do you defer it to a time when things are better? That's the plan. It doesn't always work like that. It feels like speculation to me. We don't know. And I think as we've seen time and time again, we need to be facing up to the truth, the harsh truth, and make some difficult decisions and invest, right, in new technology to solve the energy problem and everything else. So, yes, it's sobering, but we need to make these decisions and to move forward. We can't just throw arguments around and hope that things get better. Things do and don't work. Staying with the same thing. Mm. As I said, I'm not particularly a nuclear power fan. I've worked out in Japan. I've interest there. And obviously there's Fukushima as a warning that things can go wrong. Unfortunately, it wasn't too bad in that individual instance. But if we look at solar power, I looked at the numbers there, but that's, that's flawed for us in the UK. There's the obvious winter issue when we don't have much. And even in summer, it's less. So we come back to batteries. That, that, so you keep churning like that with some of the other alternatives that can do a job. Like, say, I don't know, solar probably works with air conditioning, doesn't it? Because you'll have it when you want it, so to speak, mostly. But for other things, not necessarily. And these are difficult questions. But my point is, we've shirked them. Our political class have shirked them. And now, when it takes 10 or 15 years to build a reactor, well, then we have a problem. That's the thing, because we've got used to it. Energy has oiled our economies. Mm. It's a real irony for you, and it is a bit of a ageist point in some ways but the generation that are coming forwards now are those that most concerned about energy but in their lives they're the ones that most use it aren't they Mm -hmm. look at all the things like ipads and so on or whole life wi-fi it relies on it and we've mismatched i think so we can bring that back to my generation that we've made a mess of that i think the time to correct anything's now otherwise you just make the same problem again. And as I said, some of the things will be difficult, but we need to get on with it. Yeah. I want to just move on to the last question. And you know, Sean, I'm an optimist and we always talk about some pretty heavy issues. So I want to finish on a more positive note and ask you what you're feeling optimistic about in the UK, the UK economy at the moment. Well, I think through this, we're actually doing reasonably well. Before I don't want to patronise those that are having 
difficult times. I think there are examples of areas that are doing well, for example, Rolls-Royce. Um, actually, partly that's back to the nuclear issue again, this hope of um, small modular reactors. But there are firms that are doing well. If we beat ourselves up in the UK, saying, for example, all our manufacturing's gone. Now, some did, outsourcing to China. But we're not enormously different to many other countries. And ironically, say somewhere like Germany, that is stronger, has a real problem now. Back to the energy issue I was talking about. It's too expensive in Europe. But back to the UK, in various areas, we do have strengths. And they're doing quite well, fintech and so on. So there are sort of pockets that are doing quite well. And that's what's getting us through this. Also, I'm very excited about the fact that the UK is vying to become a crypto hub. It's ahead in terms of the regulation that it's working on and it's attracting investment. And I know that VCs from America, you know, other parts of the world are setting up funds and offices in London. So that's really exciting. And also in my world, you see a, a traditional strength in the city of London. Now there are weaknesses in that for example, things of money laundering and so on. But many areas like foreign exchange and various bits of trading are a UK strength, which has continued. Now, there always was going to be some dislocations with the Brexit issue. But in general, I was always very sanguine about that. I'm talking about the financial sphere here. Why? Because you might lose something. But if you have a dynamic sector, it usually finds something else. In fact, here's a real irony. It usually does better when you're banned from something. Everyone mm. starts thinking and finds something else. So that's a whole area. In fact, in general, what I was more sanguine about, of course, there were going to be some issues, but one can move on. We have the same problem, which is back to our political class that won't adjust because they mostly continue to be obsessed with Europe rather than trying to make an effort to move on, which is part of the point of it. You know, this is where we are, but there are parts of the economy that are really dynamic, moving forward, changing. But some areas, I'm amazed they survived at all. Things like hospitality have just taken such a pounding, haven't they? Mm. And yeah, I walked past a pub the other day that was being rebuilt. So things do go forward. And back to my point earlier that when things are going badly, it's those that shout, those that are doing well don't. In fact, I'll give you an example. I've said it as an issue with problems with inflation, which is like what's happening in the football world. But actually, in the UK, the Premiership's been incredibly successful. We sell it all around the world. And that employs a lot of people. Obviously, some of it at extreme levels. Yeah, but people further down the chain as well. Yeah. If we look at, say, something in the sphere of medicine, some of the really best changes have come forwards in actually quite nasty ways. Mm. So it's always balanced. Uh, there are arguments that Microsoft got quite big, shutting down the companies that would have done a better job than it has. <laughs> There's an irony here. Yeah? I'm using a Windows <laughs> system here to talk to you all with that sort of thing. So I, it has worked. Yeah. But would there have been something better if the companies that, you know, because it then had loads of money and could buy them out? And what's actually a thing against change? That thing is really awkward. Mm. How do you deal with that? It's why we have things like, competition control but the trouble is the competition agencies usually get taken over and so that doesn't work i'm afraid we're back to human nature again 
Yeah, we have are. our good side, but also our bad. <laughs> and it's always a struggle. It is, isn't it? And it, it does come back to the survival of the fittest. Who has the most resources to enforce their will? And how do they do that? And what is their intention? I'm conscious of time. I want to say thank you. And always an interesting discussion, Sean. I appreciate your time. No problem. Pleasure. To your point, there is a lot that we should be optimistic about. There's also a lot of very sobering facts and, and events that are taking place. But I think this decade specifically is a decade of lots of change. It's a decade of lots of converging trends, certainly in technology. We haven't touched upon AI. We've talked about crypto. But all of this is having an impact. And of course, the big energy debate. That's always there in the background, a huge issue that needs to be addressed in Europe. And no doubt, Sean, I will have you back on very soon. It'll be exciting to compare how things have changed or moved on in a few months' time. Maybe things will look hopeful then. <laughs> Let's cross so. our fingers. Eh? <laughs> Thank you, Sean. Okay, bye. Thank you for joining me today. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me online at Join the Purse. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter, jointhepurse.substack.com. Until next time, goodbye.